Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm Partner and Head of Education at Shakespeare Martineau. In today's episode, we're going to look at some legal and regulatory developments affecting student disciplinary cases. I'm joined by my fellow education team expert, Geraldine Swanton, who's been advising on a number of such cases. So over recent years, we've seen an increase in the number of cases of uh, alleged sexual misconduct by one student on another, where universities are seeking to investigate and to take action under their disciplinary procedures. but not overly legalistic process for investigating alleged breaches and it's meant to be capable of being administered by members of university staff with a reasonable amount of appropriate training. Traditionally key features of such processes was that nobody uh, in the room as it were was normally either legally represented or legally qualified. Case was presented by a member of staff and decided by a panel made up of other members of staff and students. And the accused student was both entitled and expected to speak for themselves. Things like questioning of witnesses wasn't a routine feature of many disciplinary processes. And instead, for example, statements taken by an investigating officer were often adduced, with it then being for the panel to determine what weight to attach to the written evidence. Now, recent court decisions have created some challenges for this traditional approach, haven't they, Jerry? Yes, they certainly have. There have been two relatively recent cases um, in the context of sexual misconduct, and they have expanded and reinforced the a number of trends that were incipient up to then. And the first is legal representation. Uh, Only in a small number of cases would universities expect students to be legally represented. Um, But now, as a result of the first of these cases, legal representation is an expectation in the most serious cases, particularly where it has a potential adverse effect on a student's career. The second trend is um, questioning of witnesses. Again, the general principle is that is that there's no right to cross-examine a witness. But again, the most recent of the two cases reinforced the fact that, yes, in very serious cases, a student who is accused of a serious misconduct should have the right, uh, although not directly, to challenge that evidence by questioning the reporting student. And finally, uh, one of the most, I suppose, uh, you know, staggering of the the three new decisions um, is that um, hitherto witnesses didn't usually attend and their statements uh, stood in lieu. And um, it was up to a panel to decide whether they could attribute any weight to those statements. And as a result of the 2023 case, that position is now under question and it may be that you will not be able to rely at all or even to admit a witness statement on its own in the most serious of cases. So if we just um, look a little bit more closely in relation to that point about statements, um, what was it that the court wanted disciplinary panels to think about in deciding whether or not to admit written statements as opposed to requiring witnesses to attend? They they said the, the first consideration is, look, if you want to admit a statement, is that statement the sole or decisive evidence in support of the charges against the respondent? Um, 
what is the nature and extent of the challenge to the contents of the statement? You know, does it contain everything you need to know? Is there any suggestion that the reporting student had reason to fabricate the allegations, uh, the seriousness of the charge? And you can imagine in most cases of sexual misconduct, the charge will be very serious, potentially resulting in expulsion. So therefore, have an effect on an adverse effect on a student's, a responding student's career. The uh, court also said you must consider whether there was good reason for the non-attendance of the reporting student and have you taken reasonable steps to secure their attendance. Not all of these factors will apply in usually in, in sexual misconduct. Yeah. And the consequence is, therefore, that statements alone without the attendance of the reporting students are very likely to be inadmissible and the case cannot proceed, which, which is quite staggering, really. It is, it is, because especially when um, you think about uh, most sexual misconduct cases, often the, the core evidence, i.e. what actually happened at the the specific incident complained of, the only real evidence is going to be the, the, the reporting students and the respondent. It's very rare to have um, any witnesses. I think the, the other aspect is around this idea of good reason for non-attendance. Um, I think a lot of university processes in an attempt to make sure that they are supportive of people who've made such reports, have tended to be drafted on the basis that attendance wouldn't normally be required. And so I think sometimes um, reporting students can be um, encouraged to feel that the mere fact that it will be a difficult experience is enough to mean they don't have to attend. And and I think sort of the court took a look at that as, as a, a reason for non-attendance, didn't they, in these cases? Did, and they said just because a reporting student might find the experience traumatic, that was not sufficient reason to excuse their attendance, as you could equally construe their refusal to attend as an unwillingness to be subjected to any kind of scrutiny or challenge. Yeah. Okay, so so I think uh, you know you and I have both handled more of these cases than we probably ever would have wanted to, um, and and you know from my point of view they are going to create some real practical challenges for institutions. I mean, if we just think a little bit further about legal representation, it wasn't just the responding student that they talked about legal representation for, was it? No, there was a, some sort of suggestion that. Uh, depending on the circumstances, the uh, reporting student could also be legally represented. I mean, and the first problem with that is with legal representation, it creates a system where wealthy students will have access to all the procedural, enhanced procedural protections, whereas poorer students will not. So you might also have in those cases, panels having to adopt different standards for poorer students who are unable to be legally represented. And of course, you also have the problem that if you've got two students, the reporting and the respondent, being legally represented, it becomes like a court of law where they're advancing their competing positions rather than the reporting student being simply a witness to an allegation of misconduct. So it makes it extremely formalised and, and um, you know, very much a stylistic ritual. And and a lot hangs as well, doesn't it, on the sort of quality of the legal representation that that people get. I mean, we've seen scenarios where um, 
sometimes the legal representation might well be very well suited to a formal courtroom setting and, and you know, really able um, representation in that context. But it can become almost counterproductive in a uh, internal disciplinary process where panels are just not going to react in the same way that um, the judges or, or magistrates might. And I think that, you know, there is an element about what kind of legal representation is appropriate for these cases uh, if it's going to really benefit anybody um, at all. Panels are often bewildered by the submissions made by lawyers on obscure procedural points. And I think, um, you know, most panels now will be reluctant to, uh, to to engage with the disciplinary process unless they too are yeah. legally supported, which increases the costs for everybody and the time. Yeah. And, and you know, the, there are very few questions in life to which the answer is, let's have more lawyers are there and this I definitely definitely think is one of those um but I think the the issue around legal representation though isn't just confined to what it does to the hearing is it because it, it sort of it has an effect on the whole process um you know in terms of the investigation how you handle the reports what kind of hearing you're doing etc and all of that starts to really undermine the idea that this is an internal process rather than a formal legal process, doesn't it? Absolutely. And in in the wake of these cases, um, as you know, we've experienced lawyers acting for responding students who want to be involved at the very outset of an investigation. They also are willing to uh, threaten injunctions if it does not proceed as they as they have requested that it proceeds. Um, it's it's we had another case of a, a a lawyer a barrister asking for a hearing to be scheduled for five days and as you you know the sector you know is well aware those who participate in panels have day jobs and it's very difficult to get academics and senior administrators willing to give up five days out of an otherwise extremely busy schedule yeah will willing or able you know, it's it's not they they have all sorts of other and not to mention the, the 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 fact that almost always these panels will also have a student representative who will also have um, all sorts of other you know uh, commitments and, and obligations over that that period of time. So there is you know a limit to how long these things can reasonably run within a uh, a university um, context. Um, I think f- for me as well. If if it's right, and I, I think there's clear evidence that it is right, that there is a degree of underreporting of such cases at the moment. If a reporting student sees what the future holds in terms of how the investigation needs to be carried out, how that long the hearing might be, what might happen to them during the hearing in terms of questioning and you know, going back to that point about questioning, we're talking here about robust probing of their evidence. We're not just talking about, you know, some gentle questioning around uh, um, uh, their evidence. So all of that, it's quite difficult to see how it won't lead to people being dissuaded from reporting, even more than they, they already are. Absolutely. Uh, students are already um, you know, unwilling to report matters to the police because of the formalities and the fear of cross-examination. So they will inevitably be under-reporting um, of cases. And also, I suppose, 
what universities mean by a victim-centered approach doesn't and shouldn't mean a reversal of the burden of proof, but it means procedures are, are uncomplicated. They make it easier for misconduct yeah. to be reported and to be dealt with. And this increasing formalization and legalization inevitably will result in fewer cases. Absolutely. Uh, fewer cases and also possibly uh, more difficulty in, in, uh, in, in getting people to agree to sit on these panels. Um, you know, I think it, we, we sometimes underestimate what a difficult job we're asking people to do when they are making these judgments already. But I think they've probably just about got comfortable with the idea of having to establish what happened and making decisions on uh, the balance of probabilities. But we're entering a kind of different level of complexity now, aren't we? With, uh, yes. with, with yeah. Yes, we are. And what hasn't helped, of course, is um, the OFS in, um, you know, in, in creating statements of expectations for universities with regard to sexual misconduct and in its pro proposed condition of registration. They always refer to misconduct um, as it is defined by the criminal law. So, you know, they define sexual misconduct as rape in accordance with the Sexual Offences Act. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're going to define misconduct in internal dispute proceedings by reference to the criminal law, then, you know, the, the same procedural safeguards that are afforded to defendants in criminal cases will be expected of uh, responding students in dispute proceedings. Also, I suspect panels will say, hang on, you know, we will need a higher standard of proof. It needs to be beyond reasonable doubt if we're being told we have to interpret misconduct in accordance with the criminal law. So we're going to get that. That's going to reinforce the difficulty of finding staff to sit on panels. And if they do, it will be the higher standard of proof, which will probably be very difficult to achieve. Yeah, certainly in the internal process. And I do find that that the decision of the OFS there inexplicable because. Uh, you know, in 2016, when the UUK task force produced its guidance uh, around uh, handling cases that of, of potential criminal conduct as internal discipline, it produced a series of definitions, which many universities have, have adopted since, which were perfectly workable internal misconduct processes, rather than trying to import the criminal definition. So it seems a very strange step for the OFS to be taking. The other aspect, I think, of the proposed registration condition that I find um, could end up being quite difficult is the emphasis on training to be provided to staff on how to deal with these allegations. Because if we look at the complexity of it all, as we've now uh, you know, established through these, these various court hearings, it's not an easy subject to train people on. Uh, it requires a, a very sort of particular mix of skills between understanding the legal stuff and also good practice in handling students sensitively. And um, it's not as if there's just a kind of, you know, plethora of, of providers who have those skills and, and that training. Uh, you know, we, we've had some experience of trying to organise training in this area, haven't we, Jerry? I was going to say, not only is there not a plethora, there's a complete paucity of focus training for higher education. Yes. Very, very difficult to find. Yeah. So, um, so if we do end up in a position where there's a new registration condition, there's a period of three months in which everybody needs to get trained, and you've got 450 registered providers trying to train staff on it, there's going to be a serious uh, capacity issue 
um, on on the available training. And I think the same thing applies to the idea that, um, you know, as part of the registration condition, universities need a pool of appropriately qualified staff. Um, You know, there aren't currently lots of people who are skilled at doing this. And um, if we end up with everybody needing to appoint them all at the same time, goodness knows where they're going to come from. So before we we conclude the podcast, then Jerry, uh, it's it's quite easy for us to sit here and carp at all the problems that this creates. But are there any kind of possible solutions to all this? Are there things that we think might genuinely help institutions in being able to balance all these competing obligations better? It is no doubt a challenge, but I suppose the OFS and possibly in 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 association with the OIA could take certain steps to improve the situation by developing a good practice framework specifically for sexual misconduct cases that address the problems we've already discussed. Um, For example, they could give guidance on what is an appropriate way of ensuring that hearings remain manageable in length, when legal representation should be permitted, Uh, when reporting students and respondents should be required to attend uh, and what universities should do if they refuse to attend. And that basic guidance surely should accompany any condition of registration. Any good regulator should uh, consider that kind of guidance first before they start prescribing how universities should conduct themselves. Absolutely, because I think guidance like that would achieve a number of things, wouldn't it? First of all, it would give everybody some confidence in how they're approaching the cases. Um, I think it would also give a framework that institutions can point to when you get lawyers who are representing responding students to say, this is unnecessary formalisation, here's what's regarded as good practice in our sector. And I also think it would help the OFS because it would then give a much clearer sort of baseline against which to judge um, compliance against any registration condition. Regulators embark on an education process before they regulate their uh, the, the, the bodies they are obliged to regulate. So they, they inform and educate first, then they create expectations. Seems to be a long way around here. Absolutely. And, and I think the OFS has sort of tended to say, well, look, we, we issued a statement of our expectations and no people haven't done enough and now we're regulating. But it is that, you know, well, if people aren't doing enough, it's not because they don't want to. It's because this is actually a really difficult area where, you know, sensible contribution from the regulator would be greatly appreciated. Okay, well, thanks very much, Jerry, for sharing your thoughts. Thanks very much to all of you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you like what you've heard, please do leave a review. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. 